Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I am here today with two of my best friends in the world, Andrew Parks and Bo Hoffman. Uh, I'm so grateful for these guys, and they are joining me today for a very special episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. We're going to be having a roundtable conversation, and we just wanted to let it, we want to let it be organic and natural and not uh, heavily edited. So just sit back and enjoy the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the show notes, in the comments, uh, through Facebook Messenger, email, however you want to respond. We'd love to hear you chime in on this as well. Today, we're going to dive into the story of the prodigal son from the Gospels. And I've asked Andrew to kick us off by reading that. I believe he's going to be reading from the New Living Translation. All right, starting in Luke 15, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Man, Jason, uh, or Andrew and Jason, I don't have the Southern twain like you, you both have. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll leave it to my, my Northern accent up here, but people around um, the country will assume you're the intelligent one. <laughs> Um, oh my God, I didn't realize I had that much of a twang. That's great. Yeah, I loved it. It sounded great. It did sound great. I, I'm going to get Andrew to do the audio version of my book when it comes out, I think. I, dude, I would do that so heavy. Anyway. <laughs> All right, Bo, how did it hit you? Any initial thoughts? Well, I, one of the things I love so much about, I guess, the parable is just the setup that, that Jesus does for this. And I, I learned this recently from uh, Amy Jill Levine. She has a book called Short Stories by Jesus. But just how the, the setup is too prior parables, the parable of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin. And this concept in Jewish literature that you kind of tell stories in a series of three and the third being kind of one that's a lot different. And the differences in the third kind of highlight uh, what you're trying to tell in this story. And so the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, sheep and coins don't make conscious decisions to do things. And so, you know, a sheep doesn't go wandering off because it's mad. It just is viewed as an unintelligent animal that wanders. 
coins don't make decisions to get lost. They just happen to. But then with the son, the son decides, makes a decision that he wants to go explore something different, wants to leave the presence of the father and go uh, explore what's off in another land. Yeah, it, and he doesn't just do that. He's obnoxious about it. I mean, he's basically saying, you can't die fast enough, right? I mean, he's he, he's so much attitude behind that, at least in the, the translations that I read. Yeah, yeah. Dad, give me my money. Uh, you know, I, I deserve it now. I want to go um, no longer be in business or in community with you. I want the money that I deserve now. Uh, so give it to me so I can go experience something else, something not with you. That's that's an interesting the way like talking about the attitude behind him. That's interesting. I've never I've never really thought about the younger son having like an attitude as more of like a naive foolishness. But it's that's in, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, it makes me wonder how you know because with with reading the text of the Bible, it's 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 one dimensional. It's just text. There's no tone. There's no body language. It's just the rhetoric or the or the yeah. or the words. And there's a sense something that I've found in considering Jesus's parables is my state of mind whenever I'm reading them, and seeing like okay, how much of my current state of self am I seeing in these stories? And so it's almost like, so it's, it depends on who we, you know, relate to in the story. Like if we relate to the, the first prodigal, cause that's, a, that's something that's interesting. I think, I think a better title for that story is the prodigal sons, but the first prodigal, we kind of say, okay, how was I bad? How was I a problem? How was I not good enough and we all, it's almost like we have to figure out a reason for God's mercy. And that's something that like Roar talks about and a couple other people talk about like how you need a structure for mercy to like launch off of. Like law is kind of the, the, the grounding force of the catapult of mercy. And I, I see value there. But it's also a thing of like why do we have to explain a reason for God's mercy? Why do we have to have a reason for God's love and compassion? And that, that's something that I think is indicative of kind of the, the shame culture in, our, in, in the church in America is like, we've got to be bad enough for God's love to be good enough. And, and to be fair, Jesus talks about that. He who's forgiven much uh, loves much. But at the same time, it's like, okay, that's good, but let's focus on, well, I don't want to prescribe anything, but that's good. But the love of God is really just such a focal point in these things, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. But I, and I think both the sons uh, were doing the same thing, trying to justify or look for a reason that the father would absolutely. be kind and show mercy and be gentle. They didn't just expect it because that's what a father does or is. To take, just sorry to interject again. The older son is trying to justify why his father should love him, and the younger son is trying to justify why the father shouldn't love him. But the truth is, no matter either one of those things, God loves you, you know, or the the son. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny they both talk about uh, acting or prescribing or, 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 or working for the father as if they were slaves. Um, the younger son does it thinking, if I could just come back as a slave, I'd be better off than I was in the far country. You know, if, if only I could come back, father, if only I could come back and act as a slave, my life would be better. Yeah. Not right, expecting, yeah. um, maybe not expecting that the father would fully accept him back as a son, but just accepting him back as a worker. Um, and then the older son tries to justify what he's been doing for the last several years, saying, I have been working for you like a slave. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, he probably didn't even understand those words when he's saying it, but it's like, yeah, exactly. You have been working like a slave. You've yeah. been missing the picture the entire time. You were never a slave, and yet you were in a mindset where you thought you were. Why don't you just stop and become a son? Why don't you just enjoy... Um, the entirety of my business and my family and, and my household and just be my son. Quit thinking that you were working to earn my pleasure or my favor or my, you know, the, the fullness of my, my household. Just be my son so I can love you. 
Yeah, but see, I can relate really well to the mindset that says, I'm a worker, I've earned this, you owe me, um, and and absolutely shuns transparency and intimacy because there is no real connection when you think of yourself as a slave. But see, that's the church I was raised in. You know, we are the army of the Lord. We are the Lord's workers. We go out and we do this and we have visitation on Wednesday night and we, you know, you have all the programs and you show up every time the doors are open and onward Christian soldier, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like your personal holiness depends on how much work you do for the Lord. I remember hearing Lester Summerall years ago, Pentecostal icon, talking about seeing a vision of uh, people in foreign lands sliding off the ends of the earth into hell. And Jesus asked him, you know, uh, are you going to let this happen? That's the mindset that I came at, God uh, approaching from. And so uh, this mindset of a worker, man, that's just part of my DNA. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I think a lot about um, the early chapters of Genesis lately and you have this, you know, you have the this story of the earth being cursed, of of man having to, of humanity having to work the ground to bring forth things, like working by the sweat of his brow. And I was reading in Galatians a while back, and I, I you know, and that's where Paul talks about being the son of the slave woman or the son of the free woman in Galatians 4. And you have this, I had this realization that, like, if we take it in the context of the prodigal son story, you have the older brother working like a slave his whole life, even though he's not a slave. Mm-hmm. He's working to, in a sense, earn something or or gain something. But in reality, he's had it the whole time. And so it's almost like the, the curse, in quotation marks, the curse of God on humanity is really whenever we believe we've been cursed by God. Yeah. That we think we have to do these things to get these things. And really, you know, I'm a strong, strong proponent of rest being an evidence of trusting the Father. And that doesn't mean we don't work, but instead of working to gain something from our from our Father, we're rather working for the joy of the task at hand. Hmm. Because I know people that love the service jobs they're in, whether they're like one of my best friends is a plumber and he absolutely loves being a plumber. Like he loves it to death. There are other people that he works with that really just do it to get the paycheck because it sounded like a good idea to make money. Now he's getting the same benefits as the people who hate working there, but his work there is much more fulfilling because he enjoys the work he's doing. Now, not everyone is in a place where they can do everything they love to do all the time. You know, that's part of just being human, but it really says something to me about the freedom that we can have in the midst of what we otherwise might interpret as a curse or as slavery or as whatever it is. You know, when I just, when I think of the older son trying to, like you said, work um, to earn something from the father, it seems so silly looking back because he knows that the younger son just simply walked away. And guess what? The father gave him half of his of everything, and he he gave him his portion for just walking away. And it's like, man, how, you know how how did you miss that? How did you work for so long not realizing the father wasn't there to control you or to make you? Uh, stay in this line of business or work, or whatever. The father was just trying to partner with you. Um, your younger brother just simply walked away and he gave it to him. He let him do it. He gave him the desires of his heart and said, "Go, I wish you well." Um, you know, but but he stayed and toiled and, and and did this for so long, simply trying to earn the father's favor. It's like, man, what if you just realized that the father, the father's heart was always just a partner with you, and the father just thought he was giving you the desires of your heart that you stayed because you wanted to not because you were trying to please him or earn something from him. Um, but but that's definitely, I feel like, the default or where we always go. We think that in this world we have to earn something to get that next promotion or that next thing. And it's like, man, that's, not, that's just not how the kingdom of heaven works, you know? What do you guys think it looks like to partner with God? Well, I think for me, it, it's been a, a rediscovery of that. You know, I've been doing the whole ministry thing for like 23 years now. And I think I'm just now in the last year kind of rediscovering what the word ministry means. Um, you know, it, it comes from the, the word administration, but what are we administrating? 
there was a time I thought we were administrating holiness. We were administrating uh, redemption. We were administering all the, but at where I'm at right now, I just feel like we're administrating love. You know, that partnering with God is about spreading the love of God like a virus, like an infectious <laughs> disease, you know, and, and pouring it out. And, you know, Andrew, we talked on the episode you did about loving people who are not easy to love, but love transforms yeah. people. The conversation I was a part of last night, somebody brought up Hitler and, and uh, you know, we know there's evil in the world because of Hitler. And we know, you know, that, that uh, Satan is having his way because of Hitler and all that. Well, what if, what if that's not what was behind Hitler? What if Hitler is really the result of, uh, you know, some serious uh, instability that gets empowered by that culture of fear that doesn't want to change? And what if Hitler wasn't born wanting to commit genocide? What if his culture made that of him? And I'm not, you know, trying to pin Hitler on anybody, but there are a lot of people right now in, in our lives deciding who they're going to be. And we can empower, we can be partner, partners with God in calling out the best in them. Or, you know, we can, we can see people as less than human and watch them become what we've said they are. I used to think partnering with God looked a lot more like praying for God to use me and just waiting for God to dictate the rest of my life in perfect holiness where I could make the biggest impact in the world. Um, and now I'm starting to realize that I think I was a lot more like the older, the older son in that. And that God is really just saying, you know, what, what, what is the desire of your heart? That's, that's what I want to do. I don't, I don't want to use you. I want to partner with you. I want to, I want to bless you in what you want to do. Um, I've, I've made you, I've created you. You have the desires of your heart because you are made in my image and likeness. So um, what is it that you want to do? And I want to encourage you in that and bless you in that so that you can go and be you and be you to the fullest, not be you because you're trying to be something uh, that somebody else says you should be or be you because you think that that's the way ministry is supposed to look or uh, life is supposed to look or holiness is supposed to look. I just want you to be you because I've made you as you, you know, and, and if, if I believe I'm really made in the image and likeness of God and all of us are made in the image and likeness of God, then that means that there's something unique about all of us in our own individual way that reveals God to the world in a unique way. And so partnering with God, I think is like, um, and just allowing myself to be who God made me to be in this world and not trying to fit that into some other box or category and trusting that God is going to treat me like the younger son. When I say, give me my inheritance. Um, but then I can go and spend it not in ways that are going to waste it. I can go and spend it in ways that invest in the world uh, with the likeness of God and trust that that will bring fruit, fruit in the kingdom of heaven. With that, it's like something that I think people don't think about with the story is the the younger son definitely learned his lesson. Like he went and he wasted his money. We got to think too, this is the first time that the son was ever on his own, Right. It makes me think about like going off to college, living on my own for the first time, different things in my, you know, when I was younger. And the, I mean, those things, I mean, I certainly made mistakes and I was blessed with parents um, who in their own way, like when I made mistakes, they just, they loved me well. Like whenever I was, oh, how old was I? When I was 18, a lifetime ago, um, well, at least a 12 year old's lifetime, uh, the, the, uh, I got, I got arrested. You're such a young man. <laughs> I know. Well, hush. Um, well, I got, a, I got arrested for some shenanigans that I was up to. And, um, whenever I had to be in a holding cell for 24 hours and whenever I got out of that holding cell, I remember my dad just standing there. And I didn't know who's going to pick me up. They were just like, all right, you can go. Cause I hadn't talked to anyone I'd had to, because back then you couldn't like call anyone that didn't have a landline. So I had to call like a friend's father in the middle of the night. Cause neither of my parents had a landline that worked and um, they were all on the cell phone game and all this stuff. And like, I didn't know where I was going to come from. And my dad was just standing there and you know, my dad didn't run and sweep me up like the father does in the parable, but he did. Uh, he did. He, he wasn't angry. He wasn't like, he wasn't wildly frustrated. He, he just took me home 
with the younger son, it's like he comes back and all of a sudden he's getting everything that he had thought he lost again. Because the ring and the robe in that story, in that time, from what I understand, represent authority. So he was going back to not being like we know a hired hand in the house, but being a son of the owner of the entire farm to where he had say, he had control, different things like that. And in the same way, it's almost like I know in my own life, God has picked me back up after mistake, after mistake, after mistake. And he, he dusts me off. He puts on a fresh robe and gives me a new ring and says, try again. And I think that's that's a thing too. Like we don't have to be afraid of a limited economy with God. Now, what, what the resources God brings into our lives are always different, but God is always wanting to give us more because He has the cattle on a thousand hills. He has enough, and we are like we are all unique flowers growing in the garden of God. Like we're going to become what He wants us to become. Isn't it mind-blowing that, you know, the, both of the sons were all about the work and what they could contribute and, and what they had earned and all that. But the, the father, when he's celebrating with the son, the younger son at the end, he's not celebrating, oh, my, my son's come home. He can take over the family business again or he can do his part. He's celebrating a, a decision. He's celebrating my son wants to be with me. Yeah. He came home. It's not about what he can do. Yeah. It, this reminds me of when Jesus is baptized, right? before he'd ever done any miracles, before he'd ever done anything really impressive. And the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hadn't done, you know, a tenth of what he came to do, but he, he showed up, he came back. He, he, you know, Jesus presents himself for baptism. He's starting to fulfill that plan. And it's just a conscious choice. My son wants to be with me. Yeah. And, and the father thinks that's worth celebrating. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of a, a quote from Henri Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, talking about when the younger son returns home and then thinking about the father's outstretched arms. It says, it seems to me now that these hands have always been stretched out. Even when there were no shoulders upon which to rest them, God has never pulled back his arms, never withheld his blessing, never stopped considering his son the beloved one. But the father couldn't compel his son to stay home. He couldn't force his love on the beloved. He had to let him go in freedom. Even though he knew the pain it would cause, both his son and himself, it was love itself that prevented him from keeping the son home at all costs. It was love itself that allowed him to let his son find his own life, even with the risk of losing it. Like how beautiful that concept of, well, two different concepts there, I think. Um, first, the father always being in the same attitude and mindset towards the son that it, he was always looking for, waiting for uh, his beloved son to come home. His hands were always outstretched, hoping and praying that the son would come home. But then also that same love is what made him decide he couldn't force the son to stay. And he had to let the son go. Uh, if the son desired to go off into that far country, desired to go and spend his life in a manner that was not in fellowship and community with the father, then the father, if the father was truly a father of love, had to let him go. Couldn't, couldn't force him or control him, had to be um, a loving father who said, no, if this is a wish and the desires of your heart, I have, to, I have to consent to it and allow you to go off. And just how that kind of, for me, like completely reshapes this idea of what I think the wrath of God is um, and something Jerzak talks a lot about in A More Christ-Like God, but just the wrath of God is not God acting angry and punishing Right, But instead, God being a God of love, allowing us to inflict kind of the harm of our own decisions on ourselves. And so if the son, the younger son, wants to go off and spend his money and, and act foolishly or unwisely, then the love of the father is to allow him to do that and to reap the results of that. And throughout that process, we, you know, we just define that or describe that as the wrath of God a lot, but God's reaction is not in wrath, God's reaction is to keep his arms outstretched at all time and welcome the son back. As soon as the son decides he wants to come home, even if it's not coming home because he wants to be in fellowship necessarily, but coming home in hopes that he can fill his belly. Like even if it's just a, a selfish decision to come home because he's hoping he can get some food, um, the father's heart is still in absolute love and mercy towards the son. Yeah. 
I mean, that sounds like good news right there. <laughs> I've heard something by that name before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I find myself so much in that younger son's, you know, he's practicing his repentance speech on the way home. <laughs> you know, God, Father, if you'll just take me back, if you'll just do this, I don't deserve to be your son, but if I can be your servant. And, and you know, the father blows past all of that BS and just loves him. Yeah. And man, that I found myself there a thousand times. Yeah. It's so central to, it, it's just so central to everything. Like any, any type of religion that doesn't have a foothold on that. It, it's just, I don't care how, how quote correct it is. I just, it's not worth my time. It's not worth my energy. It's not worth, it's not worth me trying to connect to that because I'm not connecting to anything in that. Like the only way that I, that for me personally, that I experience connection with God is from a foundation of love, of that self-sacrificial, other-centered love that we see all over the scriptures, all over Jesus's words, all over his actions. It's, it's everything. I mean, and to echo what you guys have been talking about, like even with, um, with with the with the preceding parables the the sheep and the coin the joy is at the return it's not at look what's next it's not oh i got the sheep back so now i can sell 100 sheep instead of 99 it's not oh i got my my bridal coin back so now i've got everything like i'm going to get to use it the way i always plan to use it no 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 it's not oh my son is back so now i can get that extra 10% on the bumper crop that i was hoping to get no it's i found it the joys in the return yeah and uh in dr uh Levine's book she kind of points out in there that at the end of all of these parables, or at least towards the end of the the prodigal son parable, the owner of the object in the first two throws this huge celebration, this huge party, and that it's not unreasonable to assume the value and the cost to the owner far outweighs the object that is returned. And so in the concept of a lost sheep, um, the person, the owner celebrating the fact that the sheep is back probably was spending a lot more on the celebration, maybe even serving mutton she suggests in the book, just the fact that it's all about having the object back that the person loves so much, um, but yet throwing this big party. And the same thing with the lost coin, having one coin back and throwing a celebration probably costs more than that single coin. And yet it's just because it, it, that's how much it meant to that person. And obviously we don't place value on sons or anything, but the same kind of concept there with the, with the lost son throwing this big feast at the end probably had such a great cost to the father, but it's worth it because that object is what has value. In this case, it's the son. And that, that, that being children of God and being in presence and community with God is what brings God so much joy. And that's why God's willing to go out of his way to have so much, you know, at what cost to have that celebration it's at any cost. And it also, it's like that, that concept of the, of the celebration outweighing the value of the thing that was found right there, like that itself is subversive because, I mean, as humans, we're always placing value. We're always saying this is better than this. This is good. This is a good thing. And that's a bad thing. Or this is a better thing. And that's a lesser thing. And, you know, at the end of, um, of that parable with the older son, the father says, I'll just read the verse again. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. He doesn't qualify everything of his own being his son's because he always stayed by him, but he recognizes, I see that you've stayed by me, but why have you forgotten that you're my dear son? It's, 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 I mean, that's implied and I'm definitely inferring a bit from that, but the, the thing is like there, God looks at everything that has been made with extreme value. I mean, that, you know, Romans 8 talks about the revealing of the children of God is what all of creation has been waiting for. And to me, what that speaks about, because uh, it talks about creation being subjected to futility, it's 
God looks upon all things with deep, deep value because it is simply because the thing, the person, the animal, the, the landscape, whatever, whatever has been created is. And the isness is where the value is. And so we as humans, like we struggle sometimes. We're always trying to say, well, this gets more meaning than this, and this gets less meaning than that, and this is more valuable, and that's less valuable, and da 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 But God doesn't do that. And so it would make sense to me that all creation longs for the revealing of the children of God, as it says in Romans 8, because all creation is like only God sees us for what we are. This We are shedding this animal nature, this animal skin, the closer that we get to God as we begin to look at all things through that lens of love. You know, I've said this before. I don't know if I, I don't think I said it on the last podcast, but I think I've talked to each of you perhaps separately about this, but something that I've been, that has just echoed around my mind for the last like eight months or so is that the primary or the first way that we redeem the world is how we see the world. And Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, he says, if your eyes are full of light, your whole being is full of light. If your eyes are full of darkness, your whole being is full of darkness. And what's interesting about that statement by Jesus is that the eyes are a two-way street. They are taking things in. But if you have even an inkling of knowledge about how psychology works, we also know about projection. We also know about how we transplant what we're experiencing on the inside onto the outside. And there's this thing of like, okay, like when I go into the secret place, which is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 6 right before that, and I just spend time with my divine parent, when I just commune with God, I'm filled up. But then when I go out, my eyes are full of light, so I'm like a lantern unto the world. I mean, Jesus says, not only is he the light of the world, but so are we. We're a city on a hill. We are we are a light that's never supposed to be put out. Like, we are one with him. We are just like him. I mean, First John says that God is the father of lights, and we are those lights. And so whenever we step out, when we look at the world, we have to be shining with that light, and not letting dirt get on the lens, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Two things jump out at me um, about the the section of the prodigal son where the the younger son comes home. Number one, there was never a time when the son was not loved and valued by his father. There was never a time, no matter what he was doing, that the father wouldn't have given anything to have him home. The, the, the picture that's painted is the father sitting by the window, waiting, longing, counting the days till the son returns. And the son, you know, may not be thinking anything about the father at that point, you know, when, when the times were good at least. Um, but that also fits with the story of the lost coin, right? There was never a time that coin did not belong with its owner. There was never a time when that sheep didn't belong with that shepherd. And there, there was a long time in my life when I felt like if I was doing things that, that might not be God's perfect will or plan for me, that I was a disappointment, disinherited, that I was cut out and was unwelcome in my father's house. But the, the second thing is the son coming back never changed the father's heart about the son, but it did change the son's heart about the father. Oh, yes. That's delicious. Man, I love that. I've, I've often... And I think I said this to both of you before, but I think our view of our enemy often shapes how we view God. Mm. And so if you look at if you look at the older son, he viewed his younger son as an enemy. Yeah. Right. So he 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 takes his inheritance and walks away. And that complete and, and he he wanted his younger son to be away. He didn't want his younger son to come home. He didn't want his younger brother, you mean? Younger son. Yeah, yeah. The younger brother to be uh, back in fellowship with him or the father. And that completely shapes his view of his dad, right? He's, he's, he views his relationship with his dad more of one based on slave and master, and he's working to try to earn the father's, um, you know, pleasure and favor. You know, I wasn't like that son, right? I'm better than that. But the father's view is so different. Like, yeah. He's looking at the younger son and saying, even though you took half your inheritance, even though you took it and spent it unwisely in a way that hurt you, that doesn't matter to me. That doesn't matter at all. I'm welcoming you back with open arms and that view. When we can learn to, to, to view people who harm us 
through that lens, man, that will completely revolutionize the way we view God. Um, and we'll be able to, to really start seeing a, a God that welcomes us with open arms, no matter what we do, no matter what anybody um, in this world does. And that's, that's the type of love that we can then replicate that'll really bring restoration and redemption. Yeah. It's to cat to even to capitalize on your point. Um, it's, it's like the, the older brother had this view of his relationship to his father and he projected it onto his other brother's relationship with the father. And how often do we do that as Christians? We're like, Oh man, like this is how I am with God. So it must be how God is with everybody. And to me, that speaks to, we. it speaks to like, you know, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own. Like if you're not, like if, if the quality of your relationship with God brings you any sort of trouble or see, like that's what we're supposed to be focusing on. Because if we get this wrong, if I, if I think of, God is like this abusive parent or this cruel taskmaster, then that's how I'm going to expect everyone else to relate to him. And that that's not a, like we, ha- we need to be so sure of our own connection to God before we start projecting that onto other people. Because if we don't do that, then the log that's in our eye is actually going to be the thing putting specks in our brother's eye. Because it's so big and so problematic. Because, I mean, imagine that image. What a ridiculous image. A log in your eye? Like you swing around, you're going to smack everyone within a a couple feet of you. Like you can't even like have a relationship with someone without hitting them with the log. I mean, I'm sure you guys have had conversations with people that you know were in like a – maybe they were going through a troubled time or in an unhealthy state. It was almost like you had to learn how to walk on eggshells around them because the way that they were was a little more painful or a little more damaging for you to be around. And that's what it's like when we are so confident of how someone else is wrong and how we need to fix them. It's like we're swinging something at them that they have to duck. And most people don't know how to duck that stuff. Most people just get hit and then wonder why they've been hit. And I, I, you know, it's, I think that it's just so, so crucial to know that you are loved first and foremost. What you said, Jason, about, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. I'm going to be chewing on that for weeks, just how before Jesus's ministry started, his father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God approves of you before you've done anything that you think deserves to be approved of. Mm-hmm. Who like anyone listening to this, no matter where they're at, and no matter where you're at in your life, you are approved of. You are loved. One of my favorite musicians, uh, Jason Upton, he talks about how we have to learn to love ourselves because once we find ourselves, once we truly love ourselves, we discover that God has been there loving us the entire time. That in loving ourselves, it's the first way to step into tandem with the heart of God. Because if you can't love yourself, that's the closest person to you that God is loving. And you have to start with where God is working first in your life. I think it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, Andrew. This is really a story of two lost sons. And their lostness is not rooted in their location or their vocation. It's rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of who the Father is. Mm. And that has been the vast majority of my life. And really here in the Bible Belt, that's our culture. A fundamental misunderstanding of who God is that misinforms who we think we are. Because if we believe in an angry, vengeful God, we're going to be angry and vengeful towards one another, especially people we don't think measure up. And uh, the, these two sons, they, isn't, isn't it incredible? that you've got the kind of father who runs down the long driveway to meet you, who doesn't care that you're covered in filth and you smell like the pig pen, who puts a clean robe on you to cover your shame, puts a ring on your finger to give you your job back and welcome you back to the family, who, who, who's willing to overlook all of that before you ever so much as say, I'm sorry. Why, why, why would I ever want to leave a father like that? Wait, 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 wait a second, Jason. Did- are you saying that the father 
the father wasn't mad that the younger son asked for his inheritance and didn't kick him out of the house? <laughs> he didn't turn his back on him? Are you saying that the father wasn't mad that the younger son went away and didn't sentence him to a life of eating out of a pig trough? I don't believe he did. Oh, my. So you're saying the son, the younger son just came home and the father didn't even have to, to beat him or whip him or do anything like that, could just welcome him back and I, love I him? I think that's what happened, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That seems so different than what I've been told. Yeah, it sounds oh, – what does it sound? It sounds like good news or something. I don't know. That theme keeps coming back. One of the things I want to point out towards the end, the, the where it says the father went out and was pleading with the younger son, the NRSV version um, says his father came out and began to plead with him. The Greek for the word plead was – uh, kind of subject to two different meanings where it says both pleading with him, meaning like pleading him to come back into the party, but also comforting him. So it's not, I think that's beautiful. It's not just this view of the father going out, trying to get his son to come back into the party because it looks bad for him to have this party and one son's refusing to come join him, but actually caring uh, about that son too, you know, really trying to com- comfort him letting him know that he never uh, you know, left him. He never viewed this relationship as a slave-type uh, relationship where the older son was just working for him. It was always about family, always about being in communion. The father loved having him there the whole time. Let's talk about, just for a second, the implications of the father's line to the older son, everything I have is yours. What does that communicate about the heart of God? I mean, it communicates that everything God has is ours. I mean, I know that sounds like I just kind of repeated what you said. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. <laughs> it really, it, it, I mean, it really is because we miss the forest for the trees sometimes. Yeah, that's right. We're so focused on, it's like, I, we, it's so ridiculous. We have to give ourselves permission sometimes to like enjoy, especially for the workhorses among us, like yep. give ourselves permission to rest, permission to take a breath. And yet in the New Testament, the only thing, at least in my mind that I can think of, the only thing that it ever says to strive for, to work hard for, to wrestle in fear and trembling for is to enter into rest. That's right. Is salvation. Yeah. In the beginning when the, the father gave half of his what we often just see in their inheritance to the son. And at the end, when he says, the father says, you know, all I have is yours. The word for both of those is theos, which means life. And so this concept in the beginning where the, um, the, the father is giving half of his life to the younger son. And at the end, him saying everything I have, like the fullness of my life is yours. And so to think about that, like God is giving us, the entirety and the fullness of his life. And that's backed up pretty good through scripture that, you know, the fullness of God is in us, uh, Christ in us, the hope of glory, what that means to live a life where we believe that, that, that the fullness of God, now we can live in that kingdom where we walk out the fullness of who God is in this world right now, um, loving people and pulling them out of the hells that they're in, uh, inviting people to see that, man, that's just, that's something that, that is, is fun to practice and uh, obviously you need to do in communion with, with, with people if you're going to love them like that. So are you guys saying to me today that I do not have to read 17 chapters of the Bible every day, pray without ceasing, fast for days at a time, give large portions, percentages of my income to the local church, uh, teach Sunday school and vacation Bible school in order to get God's approval. It sounds like you're saying it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Yeah. Indeed it is. He's the first giver. And as for large portions of your income, I'm saying you should give those to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, but I mean, that, that's that's we can never learn to give unless we're taught to give. Papa is the original giver. Like, right. 
like, I mean, you know, I, I, I love playing around with metaphors for God and God is the father who gives generously of what he has. He is, God is the mother that nurtures freely with all she has acquired. Like there's God, God is teaching us how to be who we are, you know, by showing us what to do. And in our imitation of him, we discover the unique flavor or the unique version of, of God that we are. Hmm. Like, you know, I remember the first time I read, well, I remember one, I don't know if it was the first time, but it's the first time I paid attention. I remember when I noticed Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I was like, what? Right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That guy's got a, it's like he knew he was the apostle Paul. (laughs) And, (laughs) but the thing that like, the thing about that, that, blows my mind is that like, you know, we are called to be little Christ to everyone, you know, to lay our life down for the people around us so that they can have a unique experience and connection with God that maybe they would never have if we hadn't showed up in their lives. And there's this thing that, that, um, I want to articulate someday in a more like long form fashion, but basically that like God isn't interested in conversion. He's interested in discipleship. And discipleship is at its core really about practicing disciplines that Mm. someone teaches you. And so when Jesus talks about imitating Christ is like talks about him imitating Christ. He is, he is, I mean, Paul was listening to people's stories about Jesus. He was experiencing Jesus by the spirit and he was doing his best to understand like how to be like Jesus. But he, he obviously didn't act exactly like Jesus acted because he was in different places doing different things, but he was trying to imitate the disciplines that he saw in Christ's life. And so when we look at how we experience God in our life, like I have experienced God as, as a father, as a forgiver, as an uplifter, as someone who honors me time and time again. And so I'm like, okay, this is how I'm perceiving it. This is how I'm experiencing it. So I want to try to do that for other people. I want to try to be to others as God has been to me, you know, a, a real evangelical way to put it is, you know, like the cross is vertical and horizontal as I have received from God, I need to give out to the world. Like that to me is actually the best way to be evangelical is how has God truly treated me? And to go back to my previous point, you got to really think about that because many times we project, we project onto God our own shame, but it's like, like really just I mean, Jesus says that this is eternal life, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, becoming like, experiencing in every way possible who God is so that you can be like that to other people. And in doing that, you become the unique orchid or whatever whatever God has intended for you to be in the garden of reality that you will grow into that. And it's always unique because if, if I follow Jesus, like if I follow this discipline and Bo follows the same discipline, we're not going to turn out the same because we're two different types. We're of the same substance, right? but we're two different filters on the wonderhood of who God is. I have a feeling you'd be a little brighter of a flower than me, but we would both be beautiful in our own unique way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very flamboyant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow. I do like my I do like my bright pastels. That's for sure, <laughs> <laughs> guys. Uh, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you both for being a part of this episode. It's been really great. I hope we can do this um, frequently in the future. Before we go, do you guys have any final thoughts on the prodigal son? I, I like the idea towards the end of of what Andrew's saying about, I guess, replicating the practices of Jesus. Um, And so what you said, Jason, no, you don't need to do any of those things to earn the Father's love or earn uh, God's God's love for you. But praying without ceasing, if it doesn't look like constantly trying to repent of your sin or trying to ask for favor, instead if it just looks like God speak to me, that might often reveal to us a lot more about the Father's heart to us than anything else anyway. So praying without ceasing can be awesome as long as it is open and not... uh, merely asking for a genie like God. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to be, honestly, to build on that, it's, I think of it like 
a child who really looks up to their to their parent, you know, whether it's their mom or their dad. And when you, you know, in a in a healthy family, which sadly many of us are not blessed to have, but in a healthy family, you know, a child adores their their parent whenever they're a young child. And Jesus talks about you have to be like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And to me, it's it's about a child who's putting on his dad's clothes and it looks silly. But he's just trying to, I love my dad so much. My dad's the strongest dad in the whole world. My dad can beat up your dad. And so he wants to be so much like his father that he's trying to do things. Now, when a five-year-old tries to look like his dad, it's silly. It's ridiculous. It doesn't really look like the dad. But that is how we grow up and learn what it is. We have to, we have to be willing to look silly. We have to be willing to look undignified even to discover what it is to have this authentic relationship to actually look like him because the good father comes and even if the kid doesn't know how to put on the shirt or, or tie the shoes, the father teaches the child what to do. And he doesn't shame the child when the child rips a cufflink out and damages the shirt or spills something on the shoes or something like that. The father's like, oh, there's always there's always more of that where that came from. It, your mistake is washed away in the infinitude of my love and resource for you. And that that's the core lesson for me is that if we approach the father as a little child would approach a father or a little child would approach a mother, then that God will respond in in the best, healthiest, most loving way beyond what we can conceptualize. Paul says there is no we do we cannot conceive how much that God has for those who love Him. No height, no depth, no width. Nothing can measure how much love He has, how much goodness He has for those who love Him. Well, Andrew, of course, you're getting the last word. Uh, I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for being a part of this today. I love you guys both, and I hope we can do it again soon. Love you, man. Yeah, so good. Love you too, brother. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.